You're listening to Finding Your Genius Zone with Dirk Novell. With the help of successful individuals across industries, Dirk breaks down the unknown parts of every vocation while highlighting the importance of finding a career where you can leverage your natural skills, passions, and interests. Now here's your host, Dirk Novell. Everybody, this is Dirk Novell. Welcome to my podcast. I am uh, super, super excited to have John Banovich on. John, welcome. Hey, Dirk. Good to see you again. I always enjoy seeing you at uh, often your mom and dad's or your mother's party there in uh, Mercer Island. So good to see you again. I know. Usually I don't see sunshine with you and I see the sun in your beautiful studio. So uh, this is a different season that we get to talk. And actually, we're not too far away from each other. So we're going to have to fix that. Um, But, you know, I was just talking to John. Um, I'm going to let him kind of introduce himself. Very impressive. I know he's super humble, but he's world renowned in what he does. And, you know, this whole podcast is about tapping into the, the genius of who you are. Uh, what you were born in in this world to be, and you know, uh, it's what you do better than anybody else. Uh, and and John's just a guy who's in his flow. He's been in uh, an artist for a long time. He's uh, super impressive. And the one thing about John, I met him years ago at a, my mom's Christmas party, and he was always him and his wife were a couple that I, I my wife and I always gravitated towards. And I just really enjoyed our conversations and. Just one of those guys that you know I would love to hang out with and and you know have a beer with and just very cool. So John, I'll stop rambling. Um, I'll let you talk a little bit about uh, you know if you're on an airplane, you just got back from New York last week. Someone sits next to you and they don't know who you are. How would you answer that? That is always you know I say that uh, what my brother used to tell me and that is get a get a get a haircut and get a real job. Um, so I, I am an artist. Yes, Dirk, you got it right. And uh, I've been painting since I was seven years old. Matter of fact, I think if I'm looking at the podcast right, that painting right at the end of my fingertips and behind me yeah. is the very first oil painting that I did when I was seven years old. Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book characters. And, and many years ago, when I was working on my first book, I was actually in India at uh, Rudyard Kipling's camp. Um, and, and, and it was such an amazing moment to just think about the seven-year-old boy. And here's this, you know, at that time I was in my late 30s, 30-something-year-old standing in this full circle of this journey that has been so profound, had not a clue what it was like, um, you know, as an artist, to be an artist when I was a young boy. But um, you have this... Uh, you have this love and this passion. And, you know, I tried to do everything I could to break away from it and take the sensible road. Um, I was selling my paintings as a kid. Um, when I say selling them to non-family members, which matters, family doesn't count at, at my, at age 11, my first oil painting. And so that, um, you know, that, 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 that first exhibition, it was a sixth grade teacher that held it at a, at a, at a, in their store window at a, mall in Butte, Montana, where I grew up and um, selling to a non-family member, somebody that doesn't know you and they buy your painting because they happen to like it. You know, it's a few hundred dollars. That might as well have been a few hundred thousand to me at the time. I'm just a kid, a sixth grade kid, but it was, it gave me the confidence to say, Hey, maybe this is serious stuff. But when you get to your teens, you know, Dirk, I mean, you know, we get, we get to college with, I went to the art Institute of Seattle you know, it was all about commercial art. People are trying to say, you know, how to develop a commercial career because fine art was a, cha- that was a very challenging road. At least that's what the, the world had subscribed to this idea. And I had no interest in being a starving artist. That had like, like zero appeal to me. 
So I, um, I tried to break away from it. Um, I was weight training at the time, doing a lot of powerlifting and bodybuilding. And I thought, hey, this would be, this would be a great idea. I'll do it, become a personal trainer. And I really liked real estate. So I bought a rental house with some earnings that I had or house I lived in and I rented it out and fixed it up. And I thought that'd, that'd be a great thing to be a real estate developer. So I had all these little fantasies of, of what would be the ideal life, the secure life. Mm. But painting on the weekends, painting at late at night, when all the other stuff was done. And, and, in, and I can't remember exactly the year, I think it was 1990, well, it was, I can tell you, yes, it was exactly 1993. I decided to become a full-time artist. I sold two rental houses that I had and plunged in with both feet. And I literally felt like I'd boarded a rocket ship and it had launched, it had taken off. The whole, the universe had just laid down and opened these doors for me. And I always say, when you, you know, if you build it, they will come. When I laid down the tracks for that journey, that journey to follow come hell or high water, I had six months worth of money to live on. So I, I wouldn't have to eat potatoes only for six months. But um, after six months, I'd be in big trouble. Um, but it was just just everything unfolded and so many things opened up and the world, the world, I guess, embraced my my choice. And um, I love that. It was, it was a profound, it was a profound moment. Um, and I look back on it and my only regret maybe is that I didn't do it sooner. Although, you know, I think at the time, the, the, you know, that looks easy to say, well, I should have done it three or four years earlier, but the truth is everything happens in its due time. It's the, it's the, you, you have to wait till it feels right. Wait till it feels right. I like that. What I'm curious, like the voices you grew up in Butte. I don't know what your family was like, but you know, like as a father, my son's ninth grade. And a lot of times I just want stability. I want him to be safe and have a life, but that might not be his dream. W were there voices in your head? You met, you made a comment about how hard you tried to steer it in a different direction. I don't know where that came from, but what was the support structure like, or the voices around you, the people you loved, were they like pro being an artist or were they like scared for you? Yeah. I'll tell you, my dad was unbelievable. My mom and dad have both passed away now, but they were unbelievable. They were so supportive. I mean, like I said, my dad was buying my paintings at eight, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. Well, I think 10, he stopped buying because I had other collectors, but he would negotiate with me. He would, you know, tell me, um, why is that one better than that one? He would challenge me. I had to speak about my work, what inspired it. I mean, he was, that was the, that was the, um, batting box, you know, batting cages. That was the time, that was where I was getting, honing my skill for what was going to be required. I didn't know that at the time. I thought he was being a pain in the butt, but he was, he was really sharpening my understanding of how to negotiate and how to be, um, you know, all the things that would come after a, a talent. And he was also a pretty good wrist and my sister, my, but the, the talent in my family was really my older sister who was 10 years older. I was adopted. I was one of the three children that were adopted all from different families. But I bought, uh, my, my, uh, my mom and dad's biological child was my sister, Terry, who was 10 years older than us and was a great artist. She took me to adult art classes and would also at our kitchen table um, set up our painting, um, oil painting. I mean, think about that. Here you got a seven, eight-year-old painting at your mom's dining room table with oil paints. They are not forgiving. I mean, they go, once they go on something, you cannot get them off. So I just admired my mom's support as well. She was just amazing. But my sister, so there was a tremendous network around me. My, my fourth grade teacher uh, was super encouraging, allow me to paint longer in the classroom. 
you know, I love the attention I got from the other kids because when you can draw well, they all kind of want to hang out with you and be your friends. So that introverted me um, was able to make, you know, for, forge relationships because of that fact that yeah. people came to me. So, um, there, yeah, there was a really good support network. And I think you need that. You know, I always tell people you, you, when I give a workshop and I'll see students and they can be in the class, you can have a, you know, an 18 year old and an 80 year old on the side. And, you know, it's people in their early 20s or, you know, late 20s that have a career that are earning income, have responsibilities, often have a child or two. And um, if they don't have an unbelievable support network to break that security to at some point launch out from what everything you know that's secure and safe to that zone where nothing is known, you know, that edge of the precipice of when you leap off and um, you have to believe that one or two things will happen. They'll be solid for something, something solid for you to stand on or you'll be taught how to fly. You know, when that, mo when that leap takes place, it's a scary feeling. But, you know, the more you have, that 18 year old has an advantage because they don't have all the, they don't have a mortgage payment. They don't have responsibilities. You know, they, 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 if they fail, they only fail by a little bit. But yeah. once you get into your twenties and such, that's a bigger step. So when I became a full-time artist, I was still single. I didn't have kids. Um, and, and um, you know, I had, but I did have mortgage payment and, and things like that. But I mean, the, the time to do it is somewhere between 18 and 80. I mean, there is no, it doesn't matter. The time to do it is when it feels right. And, um, but, but this fear, that fear factor never goes away. I mean, I was scared shitless. I was so afraid that things weren't going to work out, that I was going to be eating, you know, top ramen and, uh, and uh, baked, uh, baked potatoes for a week. I remember when I first came to Seattle and I ran out of, ran out of money. I was living on Capitol Hill and I walked down to, back then you had pay phones. So I'd call back, call back to Montana, my parents, and I had too much pride to have them send me money. So I, I went to my car, was out of gas, and I went through all the, you know, under the seat and everything. And then I went to my sofa and scraped change and I had 89 cents. And back then a, a bag of potatoes, 89 cents. I can tell you, Dirk, what to do with a potato, like a million different ways to prepare potatoes. Because for six days, that's all I ate. <laughs> I feel like I paid. I've been but, there. I've yeah, been there. And I love it. potatoes, by the way. Um, <laughs> but after the fifth day, you don't. <laughs> I, I know, but you're surviving. Um, you know, I just was thinking, like, not everybody has that support system. And I think, I would think it's really relevant or really crucial to have that. Um, did you, um, kind of, I was just thinking about something, you know, you, you're, I know you're oil painting. Do you just do oil or do you do other types of painting? So I just primarily focus on oil. I mean, I, I do black and white illustrations and such, but oil is what I do. That's my lane. Okay. So I'm going back to when you were seven, eight, nine, like, was it your, what came first, the love of wildlife and animals or the love of being an artist? Yeah. Well, I think every kid, I mean, I, I have yet to meet a child that doesn't love animals in some way, connect to them, dinosaurs, you know, dogs, animals, they love animals. And I just never grew up in that respect. So I don't know where... What came first because i was drawing you know before i was painting so it's this i guess i just stayed in that lane that most children you know ask a, a classroom full of uh, kindergartners and they will draw animals 80 percent of them will draw animals so they, that's a normal natural thing i just didn't change a lot of artists start to pursue especially in this contemporary movement you know, trend and movement they go to more of an abstract or to a, a non-realism and i just I connected to nature and I connected to the animals that fill our wildscapes. And, and 
just didn't didn't change, didn't veer from it. I found my lane, found my happy spot early on. I know I've, heard, I've always let me just I always yeah. say that um <laughs> there's no question I was born to be an artist. Absolutely no question. I mean, I, I would do it if I had to pay money to do it, I'd do it if it was illegal. And every day I get to leap out of bed and do the thing that I love to do. That is such a such a gift. And the subject matter, there's some more. I mean, I've got a, I had a friend who passed away now, Steve Hanks, who was a watercolor artist. And Steve did um, beautiful uh, children and women. And women, you know, topless women, nude women. I mean, he was, and he was one of the best at it. Um, but, but Steve, I remember we were talking, he was describing his day in the studio. And you'd have a woman come in, you know, a girl and her college girl and beautiful woman. She'd take her clothes off and lay on his sofa and he'd start sketching her and drawing her. And I'm thinking... I'm sitting here by a water hole sketching elephants who are pooping in the water, you know? I mean, who's got the better life? <laughs> so suddenly, but even no matter how seductive Steve's models were, I chose not to veer from it. I love animals. I love telling their story. Now it's clear that I've, I'm, you know, preordained or destined, however you want to say it. Um, that's my raison d'etre to, to tell the story of a time when man and beast coexisted, when, when the modern world, envelops us but you were still living with pleistocene at wildlife side by side you know we still have as you know grizzlies from time to time move down into the cascade wolves are moving in the cascades um you know we have my art centers in montana i mean i see many times big herbivores and carnivores all around my studio so that's a weird thing to think about that we can take tourists to space and we can still live with pleistocene wildlife that time is coming to an end. It's closing, curtains closing. So I feel like I'm recording the last vestiges of these big things with big teeth roaming free, what they call open systems left. This is it. So I'm a recording artist in many ways. Yeah, that's really, okay. So that makes sense. Cause like part of your title is conservationist, right? Mm -hmm. But like, you're really kind of like a historian, like you're, you're, you're capturing, and so you feel like we're 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 at a time in the world where the days of us being able to witness these beautiful animals are coming to an end. Is that kind of what you're saying? No question about it, Derek. I mean, I travel all over the world. The the things that I paint don't like people typically, so you have to go find them. But um, you know, all throughout Asia and Central America, the Arctic, um, um, deserts, <laughs> uh, mountains, all across uh, Africa. Uh, Europe. I mean, I just find that um, the more I the more I explore, the last thirty years have been all about exploring the world, and there's not one species out there that's not threatened. There, there, there's just so many threats facing it, and they're all human induced. Um, you know, the the debate is how how is climate change? You know, this the climate change factor is 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 um, definitely measurable in many places, but that's not primarily what the issue is. The issue today is human-animal conflict. That's the unspoken issue. And, and um, as a conservationist, as a, we have a foundation that we've got 12 projects across the globe. Um, Africa is a big part of what I do. I, I, the reason I say Africa always because, you know, we had the big pachyderms in North America. We had um, uh, the big cats in North America, in Europe. Big cats used to be all across Europe and Asia. Today, there's just the tigers, um, and they're only remaining in a tiny fraction of where they used to live. Um, the megafauna, we have the cheetah here in North America. We had the lion here in North America. We had the cave bear, the giant cave bear. We had 
we had big things. We had big, much more big um, herbivores and carnivores roaming. They're gone, but they're alive in Africa still. There's a blinking hope. You know, lions are about twenty thousand. Um, elephants are, you know, half a million. Um, they're, there's just their their numbers are cast. They're just going down so quick. And why is because they're hard to live with. I mean, that's why one reason we removed them. And you imagine, you know, I mean, we have grizzlies up in the Cascades, but imagine a grizzly over on your side and my side of, uh, you know, the east side. Well, nobody would tolerate it. Yeah. But yet we travel to the rest of the world and say to many farmers in, in South America, Central America, or to uh, farmers in East Africa, hey, guys, could you just kind of be nice to the lions and the jaguars and the tigers and, you know, all the animals from in, in Asia, whatever, you know, just kind of tolerate living with them. If we don't, we don't economically incentivize them to live with them, they'll remove them. And they remove them really fast and really quick. Years ago, it used to take a long time to remove animals. Now they can do it within a few weeks. They have poison and all kinds of things. So as a conservationist, we're always trying to take an animal, a landscape, first protect it, and, as a, and take the animals that live there and turn them to economic assets versus economic liabilities. Because suddenly if an animal means revenue to a community, an individual and a community, they, they, they tolerate it, they keep it, they conserve it, they start practicing conservation. But conservation falls on deaf ears when you have an empty stomach. Yeah, when you got to eat. You said economically incent. Like, what's an example or two of how you do that? Say yeah. in a, give me, you know, in Africa. Let's use that. Yeah, there's a lot of there are a lot of um, different small programs, um, little entrepreneurial type programs. They're all great, but they don't they don't preserve big landscapes. Um, outside of national parks and reserves that, you know, when something's gazetted as a national park, it's great because the, the state is responsible or the federal is, uh, uh, government is responsible for protecting it. But, but so much, I mean, I'll just use Africa, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, 70% of wildlife's remaining habitat lies outside of those national parks or reserves. What, what, so you, you know, how do local people want to tolerate it, want to you know, be around it, want to accept it, want to leave it, leave it there? Imagine putting your cattle out in the morning and you see a pride of lions you know, a couple hundred yards away, how that feels when your livestock represents your 401k, your kids' uh, uh, school fees, um, your, your future, your today and tomorrow. Um, that doesn't feel very good. But what if that lion represented to, from a tourism standpoint, somebody wants to photograph it or even is as is, is unpalatable as this can sound sometimes, even hunt it. Um, suddenly you go, that means revenue. I'm going to move my cows over here today because I see where those lions are. And I'm going to have my cousin come out and help me. And we're going to, we're going to really pay close attention. So if those lions come, we can throw something at them. Lions will always run from people. They'll, they're never, you know, they won't confront them um, unless it's nighttime. Nighttime changes the score, <laughs> but then during the daytime, they always run. So, um, you know, suddenly you have a different viewpoint and that's what it is. It's tourism. You create an economic incentive through tourism, consumptive utilization or non-consumptive utilization, non-consumptive utilization, what we call hunting um, or, or tourist hunting is really, and a lot of people don't like to hear this, but it's the inconvenient truth. It's the unspoken revenue stream that, allows wildlife to roam free or to live in a landscape that is sometimes not really pretty, hard to get to, uh, in a land of political instability. Because mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, it's local people that live with it that determine whether it lives or die. 
So local people are the true um, custodians of wildlife. They implement conservation or they abort it and, and remove it. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, it's deep. Like, and obviously this is your life. So you're, I'm just a, a new guy uh, listening and it, it blows me away. I mean, when you have heated debates or discussions about things like this, you know, like the hunting, I'm sure a lot of people like initially would think that's not the right way to do it, but I can see how that would be advantageous. Um, the hard part is I, I would think is, you know, people living over there, it's not like people living here in Bellevue and Seattle, they, you know, they need to eat, they need to survive, right? Um, they need to feel safe when they're walking through their village. So I would think that would be very challenging to, to articulate and convey the message when you know, we're the ones going over there because we love it, but they're the ones living there that have to deal with it. Yeah. I, so I brought the Speaker of the House of Kenya to the United States, and we went to the Yellowstone. We took him to Yosemite, and we took him to Yellowstone um, National Park and the Yellowstone ecosystem to look at the North American wildlife model, both our successes and our failures. And um, he, he, he said something that just summarized it so well. He said, John, you know, people come to my country. I'm not Jimmy Fallon. I'm a better with a brush, but John, <laughs> people come to my country and you have, they say you have, when we have beautiful wildlife, they tell us we have beautiful wildlife. Why don't we save it? Why don't we protect it? He says, I call them suitcase conservationists. If they love it so much, why don't they take it home in their suitcase? Could eat my cow, would eat my grass and even eat my brother. As well, his brother got drunk one night, passed out on a road and a lion came along and ate him. But that's a different story. The yeah. story that I want to say is he summarized so beautifully that we in the Western world have really mitigated that you know, a big portion of the human animal conflict other than like in the Yellowstone ecosystem um, where you still have herbivores and carnivores that come out from federal protected areas to state land, to private land. But other than that, we've removed the grizzly from 99% of its former uh, range. Wolves from basically probably, I'm just guessing on this one, but about 90%, 92% of its former range. So, I mean, here you have Africa, you know, people are telling people, hey, you must protect it, making decisions at the political level, at the, you know, at their own country level, the UK, you know, uh, the European Union making decisions and such. I mean, here in America, we've re recently made a couple of decisions about uh, trophy imports. I mean, those, those have massive economic impacts to Africans. And this is a horrible thing to, you know, to, to say, but I'll say it because it's so um, poignant and it illustrates it so well. When the day that Cecil, the lion, that well-known lion from Wangi National Park in Zimbabwe was killed by, a, by the dentist, the hunter, he, the hunter, by the way, the client did everything right. The professional hunter broke a lot of laws, but that's not the point. The point is when Cecil was killed and the world outrage erupted as how could you know, this hunter do this and how, how bad it was, there wasn't one African, not one, that cried that night. There was one less lion to eat their livestock. They were all happy about yeah. it. So yeah. the, the point of you know, with that statement is you can't, be, you can't make third world decisions from a first world perspective. We have to put ourselves in the, in the, in the shoes of, of people that live with big things with big teeth. And so, you know, as an artist, I'm lucky because I have the ability to transcend the left and the right, the political world. 
Um, you know, no, the artists aren't partisan. <laughs> so, you know, I can, I'd be, I'm Kenya band hunting in 1977. When I go into meet with some of the ministers of wildlife and, and the, and the Kenyan uh, uh, administration, they welcome me with open arms. But if I was a mouthpiece for a trophy hunting organization, they'd show me the door, you know, um, sit, you know, I get to go into Tanzania, no problem. So I get to, and then in this country, I get to move from the left and the right, you know, because our, by art, by nature is not partisan. So it allows me a, lot, a really good um, uh, open dialogue and, and opportunity to sit at a lot of different tables on decision-making policies and such and strategies. But at the end of the day, you always have to put ourselves in the shoes of somebody who has to live with big things with big teeth and what their perspective is like and try to help make decisions that keep landscape intact where wildlife can live on it in an open system. We can always fence it in. That's a that's how I always say fences are great and they make great neighbors. When you fence something in, you mitigate the human animal conflict, or you, you know, 90, 95% of it. Because humans are on one side and wildlife is on the other. But when you fence it in, you take the world wild and you remove that, you know, from a wild landscape or what we call wilderness. Imagine taking the world wild out of wilderness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it doesn't say the same thing. It's not the same. When you fence it, it, it suddenly becomes that. Even if you're talking fences that are million acres, like the Booby Valley Conservancy is a million acres in Zimbabwe. They fenced it because of human animal conflict. It has black rhino, it has elephant, it has lions. They've got to cull lions every year. You've got to cull a lot of hundreds of lions. Nobody really knows that, but that's what they have to do it to mitigate once you have so many animals inside a fence and they continue to propagate, you've got to manage that ecosystem. You got to take a little bit of that and, you know, move that from there. And you've got a, you've got a disease that goes through there. It rampantly moves right across the, the species. So all these things happen when you put a fence. So we want to avoid fences as long as we can. Um, yeah, someday, I get it. Yeah. Someday, you know, the Serengeti will be fenced. They're already putting a fence up on the Western corridor. So I, I love that Dirk, that you and I, and all of your listeners, live in a time where we can still go to Africa and meet a lion in East Africa and know that if that lion wants to walk to Morocco or Cape Town, it can. That's a profound moment because it's free. It's in living in an open system. The minute we fence it, it's a big version of the Disney story, the animal kingdom in Florida. Yeah, I was watching a video years today where you were in the water, I don't know, 15, 12 feet away from a lion and there was a, I think a giraffe. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just, I have to ask, like, I see you and then I see the animals, but like, are you scared? Why aren't they coming after you? I mean, or there's, is there an army behind you? I mean, like, how does that happen? So animal, let me just tell you about animals. So, I mean, I have 30 decades of reading animals. And what I love about animals as a general statement is their body language doesn't lie. Like humans lie. <laughs> you know, we, we mis mislead everybody all the time. Our body language, you know, you can misread it, but, but animals don't. So if you watch an animal, an elephant or a lion or whatever it might be, a, a leopard, a rhino, you know, you know that first of all, you know their behavior, but you can tell their moment and how they're making decisions based on their body language. Sometimes it's dilation of the pupil. Sometimes it's the movement of the ear. Sometimes it's a, a movement of the tail. It's a combination. Sometimes it's the way that they're using their mouth and they'll turn their head. 
I mean, you just understanding each each animal's nuances to be able to read. Like I couldn't read a, a killer whale. I have not a clue what a killer whale would be telling me. I'd love to go with a biologist and go diving and see, you know, around the Puget Sound. But but I know well. I know what a canine, a wolf, will be doing, or a wild African wild dog, or um, in the in the in the um, uh, big cat world, the feline world. You know, most big cats behave similarly. Lions are a, are a uh, pride animal. The world's only social cat. So they behave slightly different than a solitary cat, than a tiger, but there are some similarities to it. So yes, um, what was the way to survive that moment without that line running across that shallow water, by the way, <laughs> it wasn't very deep, Right. Um, is, is that if I, I can see that he doesn't know what I am, and as long as I'm not a threat, that he has that flight option to play, the, play his, his fight or flight. Animals only, there's black or white, fight or flight. If you don't cut off the flight, then they always have that as a choice. Interesting. So I, I, I you know it's it's so interesting. I have a friend, Mike Mike Penman, who again passed away recently. Um, who was a, a he had a television show called Animal uh, on the Animal Planet called Mad Mike and Mark. He was Mad Mike. Okay. So Mike Mike and I have done some wild stuff before, but Mike uh, was always a believer in that animals lions are not man eaters. So he was having this debate one time with some BBC people and. Mike ends up finding two lions. He goes out and he says, I'm going to introduce myself to those lions. Doesn't have a gun. And the two lions are laying in the field and he crawls out and he picks up, he has a roll of toilet paper that he pulled from behind his seat and he carries his white roll of toilet paper, he crawls out and he, and first lion gets up and just walks away. Like the flight option was, was available. The other lion was like, what the heck's this? So the lion starts to walk up to him. Mike sits on his butt, takes the roll of toilet paper and picks it up. And the lion jumps back and looks at him. And what is that? And the lion kept trying to circle him and he kept turning around and the lion goes to give him a, a swat and he picks up the roll of toilet paper again and <clears throat> the lion jumps back. And so he did that three times. Finally, the lion just said, oh, I'm, I'm out. So just walked away. The point is that when an animal can't really frame, you know, what's going on here. Yeah. Um, it, and it, it has the flight option. It'll yeah. always choose it. Always choose it. Now, the third or fourth time that Mike would do this to the same line, the lion goes, oh, I know how this story goes. I think I'm going to actually whack this person. <laughs> but when it doesn't have a frame of reference, it chooses flight always. That's really, really interesting. Um, I don't know if I would have the guts to even come close to, but um, let me rewind a little bit. Cause I'm, you know, you start, you, you made a comment where you became an artist. You started off, you had six months. You're kind of saying I got six months of survival. Um, what I'm trying to do is someone's watching you right now and people that are artists typically are passionate, I believe in what they do. It's, 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 you said in your video, it's who you are. It's part of your identity. Um, you had, did, it sounds like you might've had success. I, I guess what I'm asking is how does someone starting out, like, did you just start painting and then all of a sudden people wanted your stuff, they would pay you for it. Or was it a museum that wanted to carry your, a line of paintings like 20, 10, like, how does it work in your world or how did it work when you first started? Like, how did you, how did you have success so early? Or, I mean, I don't want to say you were lucky, but like if someone's trying to figure out how to make a living doing this, is your route typical or yeah. were you lucky or what? Well, yes and yes and yes and yes. Um, so, uh, you know, you, as an artist, typically artists are introverted as a general statement. Almost 80% of the artists I've met are slightly introverted. That's the, that You couldn't be really a uh, extroverted person and spend 15 hour days, weeks on end, 
alone in a studio. So um, it, that's a perfect home, place for an introvert. I am as well. I can play an extrovert on TV, but I'm definitely an introvert. Um, and so you need somebody that can that can typically sh share your work with the world. You can create the greatest work, but the world doesn't see it. So you need that conduit. So my story was um, I started showing, I, I knocked on some doors and some galleries. I went to Sun Valley and the Trails West Gallery, no longer there, but um, they accepted my work. Um, and they say accepted it reluctantly. They always do that. You know, I went to Wild Wings downtown Seattle. It used to be right next to um, the Four Seasons there, the Fifth Avenue Theater. Mm -hmm. um, they accepted my work. Um, I went to uh, Hole in the Wall Gallery in Ennis, Montana. They accepted my work. When I say accepted me, they said, yeah, we'll try a few pieces. Cost them nothing. They just can sign a few pieces on the wall. And I sold a few pieces. So, you know, I had a few hundred dollars here. I could never make a living off of just that. But I feel, you know, sold a few pieces. I was also a personal trainer at the time. So that um, that made a difference. But when my big moment come, and this is where I say you create your own luck. This is where I started thinking about, okay, who buys my work? What do they, I mean, who, who the style of work that I do? Mm -hmm. If you're painting um, abstracts, or if you're just, you're, you're a very, um, how do I say this? You're a, an artist that uses a lot of color and it's non-realism and it's, um, uh, uh, you know, very, uh, very energetic and has a lot of energy. Those work great in public commercial spaces, you know? So, but my work appealed to people who loved wildlife, who loved animals. And so I found my audience, but, bef but before I found my audience, how I get from, got from where I was to get to where the audience lives or mm -hmm. interacts or plays, there's a chasm there. And that's where we all get lost. That's where we run out of steam. We run out of gas. We don't make it over that chasm. And I've had to think about because my income level did not put me of the same mindset of my buyers. I had nothing in common with my buyers. Mm. I didn't travel the same places. I didn't read the same magazines. I didn't fly the same way. I didn't drive the same cars. I didn't live in the same neighborhoods. I knew nothing about my audience. So I had to learn about them. I had to buy the magazines that they buy. I had to think about, I had to put myself in the shoes. What does that person do? What does their world look like? What's their viewpoint? What programs do they watch? What radio stations do they listen to? What podcast do that, you know, I had to get my mindset so that I had a listening, could understand what my customer's world was like, how they helped, how, how, you know, I had to do a customer identification. So once I have a good sense of that, then I had a target to go to. But my, um, the way that I got to them was uh, I thought, okay, I'm going to enter instead of being subjected to having reps and agents only dictate the path of my career. Um, I hated that, have that control because they've got a lot of things going on in their life. What if they go out of business or they make a bad decision? You know, who, there's all kinds of other, other things that play there. I don't want to have my career subjective to those folks. So I thought I needed to go direct to consumer. Once I knew who the consumer was, how do I get to them? And the, at the time, there was a show, a big group show called the Pacific Rim Wildlife Art Show at the time. This goes back into the you know, 80s and, and 90s, uh, very early 90s. Um, it was held in Tacoma, Washington at the Tacoma Dome at the time. And um, I entered my, I did a body of work and I was a brand new artist. So I was in the nosebleed section, as you can imagine, that big floor. But I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, I looked, I walked the show a couple of years in a row. I talked to other artists. I talked to some of the people that, in the, that promote the show. I got my sense of landscape. And then I thought, what is it that no one's doing? Well, no one's doing big paintings. 
No one's doing African scenes. And I hadn't been to Africa yet, by the way. And no one's doing kill scenes, you know, predator-prey relationship. So I got the perfect formula. I'll do big African kill scenes. <laughs> but also that inspired me. I love watching, you know, uh, television shows and that, uh, you know, um, back in the day, uh, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. I mean, I watched all of this stuff. And so I read a lot and, and I, I knew the subject matter from, from an from a, uh, armchair viewpoint. But um, that's what I did is I painted some African kill scenes. I remember uh, I won best of show at that exhibition with a, two, a little painting called um, In the Heat of the Day of Two Lionesses Juxtaposed Each Other. So I had a very interesting composition. I gave everything I could to this little painting. And because it won best of show in both the painting and sculpture by an unknown artist in the nosebleed section, it was really interesting for magazines and media, as well as um, a publishing company that, that signed me up. And so that was my first big break, but big breaks only take you a little distance. You know, you've got to continue to reinvent yourself. Yeah. And so I stayed in that lane. My galleries are saying, you know, we don't want those big African kill scenes. And I thought, that's my passion. I want to do big African paintings. Again, Africa being because of the, the fact that it has the big megaphone on it, you know, still yep. left. In it. Um, and I was doing North America and Asia as well, but Africa harbors 70% of the megafauna left on the planet. So biodiversity. So um, Africa kept calling me back. And so I thought every time I had a few extra dollars, I'd go back to Africa. I booked my first trip after that exhibition. I had a few dollars that I could actually put into to my, I, I, three weeks later, I was in Botswana and Zimbabwe. And so I just started throwing all my money back into it. And at that time, now I started to build up my identity and my um, credibility so that the collectors suddenly saw me not as a person trying to be an artist. I was an artist. And so I could bring to their conversations stories from the from the far, stories from the bush, stories from tales from the crypt, you know, tales from these great encounters of a lion in the mud hole or the water hole with a lion eating a giraffe. And suddenly you now get to be, um, you know, invited to a lot of different things where you get to speak and invited to cocktail parties and get to interact with others' world. Yeah. You'll never be able to be members of the golf club, you know, at the time at building my career. I couldn't afford to do all, a lot of things, but what I could win is storytelling from my adventures around the world. And so I just, I mean, I anybody that had an extra space, I would go with them. It was expensive to travel to Africa. It was a big deal, but I threw every dollar that I had at you know travel. And so that became my, um, my uh, strength. And understanding how all these places stitched together. You know, after 30 years of traveling the globe, you know, we have a travel company now. We, we host, except, uh, we host um, uh, clients or design clients trips about 25 to 30 trips a year um, to all of the places that I've discovered and have deep relationships with. So it really has been a great way to flesh out um, all the things that a little old boy from Butte who was, you know, <laughs> um, had, had no, uh, had ne never ventured beyond uh, Silverbow County um, could, could, could bring to the table. And that's, um, and that's the, the adventures of, of my travels and the people right. I've met on them. So I read 48, 50 times you've been to Africa. Is that um, accurate? Actually, I'm going in, in a week. I'm going next week. And that's uh, my 60th trip. So a lot. Amazing. So tell me about, okay, so, you know, people are watching this and, and I knew who you were and, you know, just getting to know you through the years, 
you know, you're, you're, they, some said you're one of the best of your generation and what you do. And you don't have to reply because I know you're a humble guy, but you know, sometimes when you're thinking about you set the bar too high, it creates fear. It creates uh, numbness, neutral. You don't, what is your advice to somebody that maybe didn't have the family support system you had, but is really passionate and this is who they are, but they maybe are running into fears of starving and your attachment to money, like someone that wants to become an artist, what should they do initially? Like there's gotta be maybe a a right way to start, or are you saying just start? Well, yeah. I mean, all those fear, you know, that's where discipline comes in over motivation. You know, you've got to have that discipline to rise every day and just pursue that path. But, but, but what you're talking about is that there's a moment where you leap from secure to security to insecurity. And security is always false, as we all know that, you know, you've got a job that pays, you know, you can pay your bills. Um, that's, that's, that can go away too. Although it feels like the secure thing, because when you go out leap to make a living off of, uh, your creativity or the way that you feel about something, whether you're a musician or a painter or a sculptor, um, an actor, uh, you know, any sort of performing artist, you know, that's a fearful thing because you don't know where your next job's coming from, you know, next paycheck. But that is where the opportunity lies. And so um, the fear never goes away, for sure. But I think read bios. I mean, I read every biography I could. I read every business, art, um, actor, every bio I could possibly find. I just consumed that stuff because I always took away 1%. That 1% or mattered. When you read a dozen of them, you got 12%. And you read two dozen, you got 24%. You know, those 1%ers stack up. And so you use those things about how did they do it and and that's how how i um strengthened my my confidence as to what the what would lie in the road ahead because when you leap off that precipice of security to unsecurity it's foggy you don't see you know it's a lot of fog um the clearer you can make it through others journeys the better i have a book that um unfortunately it's on it's sold out at the publisher it's on amazon i see it all the time but um, they, they sell for a lot of money. So um, I just saw them the other day, they were selling for like $800. It was only a $69 book, by the way. Um, we, we, we gave, we gave when the Wildlife Museum in uh, Springfield, New Jersey, uh, Johnny Morris's Wonders of Wildlife opened, he wanted to give um, President Carter and President Bush a book. And he calls me and said, hey, can you get some of your books? Do you have some of your books? I said, Johnny, I got to buy them on Amazon. I said, and they're, at the time they were $800. I said, I'll buy two of them and sign them to the president's great. I did and sent them to him. And Johnny said at the cock, he calls me the next day. He said, the cocktail party, we, we gave the books. They loved them. And he said, somebody stole um, Carter's books, president Carter's book. And I says, well, I'd like to think because it was the book and, he, and they loved it. But the point is, uh, I, you know, I have it in that book is my whole journey, my whole story about how I started and all the, you know, trials and tribulations, but to summarize it for your listeners, it's, um, you know, you have to, you, you try to reduce as much risk as you can. You've got to have a nest egg, whether that be a few months, whatever you feel. I had six months. I had literally six months worth of that. I didn't have to sell have any income and I could survive because I had that rental house, one rental house that, that, that I've made some money on. Um, but that's it. You know, you got to get some, and if you don't have a, a support, a fiscal support network, it's up to you. So start squirreling, you know, your nuts away for that moment when you can take that cat leap or when you're ready to take that leap. And the other thing is understand the landscape. And then I reached out to several artists that I admire who didn't know me and said, can I just come in I, I, 30 minutes of your time? That's all I need. And they, and I flew down and three hours later, they were, you know, 
thanking me for coming down. So they love it when they see somebody who's got the the right chops, you know, they're the, and the passion, and they're not they're not uh, you know trying to steal ideas. They're not going to be a competitor. They're just they're just there to to tuck in for a moment. And and every successful artist or successful person, as you know, Dirk, they want to pay it forward. There's a chance when you have ability to help move someone in into that zone. Um, into their own genius zone, that feels really good. That's a great feeling. And so, I mean, all three artists said no. I mean, all three artists said welcome, welcome me and come on. So, um, you know, do what others do. Uh, um, modeling, as Tony Robbins says, modeling, um, you know, uh, reduce your fiscal risk, get your support network. It might be your spouse, it might be your cousin, it might be your neighbor, it might be the guy who lives in the apartment, you know, below you or next to you. Um, Get your support network. You need a couple of champions that can kind of pick you up and dust you off when you when you hit the pavement and your nose first, and you don't feel like moving. That's that's when they say, "Hey, man, come on, let's <laughs> we can get this." Um, so find your support network and then develop a timeline to it. You know, it's sometimes you if you're waiting for the feel the feeling to hit you, um, and you wake up one morning the feeling hits you, but by noon it's gone. <laughs> you need you need a you need a timeline that says. Okay, and the timeline can be altered and adjusted, but you have to have a timeline. So in essence, you're creating a strategy plan. You're creating a, um, a plan to follow. Okay. Um, what's the biggest, I mean, that's, that's awesome stuff. And I, and I appreciate that. I, uh, I love the idea of getting with people who are credible, that are willing and open to kind of teach. I feel like in all of my podcasts, uh, that's, often the advice is just go sit. If you want to be a teacher, go sit in a classroom. If you want to be a coach, go out on the field and watch the coaches. Um, so thank you for that. One of the things I always ask people is like, you're a smart guy. I know you had a lot of um, clarity around what the career could be. What is it that maybe has surprised you? Like that is beyond the job description that you're like, you know, I think you're a little, I don't, you're close to my age, but maybe, you know, 20, 25 years in, you're like, whoa, I didn't see this coming at all and maybe good and bad, like something about the industry that you might warn people about um, that they, it's not so obvious. And then maybe you kind of elaborated on some of the things that you love, but what, what has surprised you most that you didn't see coming? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Dirk. So, um, you know, and I've seen this with some of my actor friends, um, you know, people that I know I've seen it. Michael Keaton had it. Um, John Mayer had it. He bought my house in Montana. I see you, no matter who you are, music, musician, actor, painter, artist, fine artist, you're gonna to get to a point where you stagnate. You stagnate where you know, your, career, um, your, your, your career just runs into a flat part. It just is, they're plateaus. And often in those plateaus, and I see it in the music world a lot. I mean, um, there's, there's one friend who I know, um, you know, well, Ryan Lewis. I mean, Ryan's you know, a great example. He's a local person. Ryan's a great friend. He's a good guy. Um, Ryan and Macklemore split. Um, you know, you get to that point where you say, how do I redefine myself? Because you, in order to break up through a plateau, you've got to redefine yourself. And that's really, really difficult when you had a certain level of success. And here you are, and you've got to kind of take yourself to the next level. What does it take to do that? And for a fine artist, um, and, and, and true with the others, is that you have, to, you have to keep what works, but you have to reinvent yourself. 
you have to give new it's like birth <laughs> you have yeah to birth again and that's that's really really hard to do um i never realized that i thought once you hit a certain level it's just tick 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 up but no every single one of them and it's so difficult to keep it from doing this yeah and at the inertia momentum is like working against you so your career often back i, I use the decline word or backslides um and and you can get forgotten really quick. I mean, the world can forget you really quick. And you think about the 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 resurrection that Michael Keaton had in his career. You know, um, love him. Yeah, I mean, uh, so so great. So you constantly have to redefine who you are and kind of what your brand is. You know, I, I'm a I'm a voice for wild place, wildlife, and wild places. I mean, I see that. I see that. You know, in the films that we do, we've got a couple of documentaries out. Um, in the in the in the in the panels that I guess to ask to sit on and um, on the board for the American Prairie Reserve, we're creating the largest protected area in North America, in in central Montana, one of only four historic grasslands. I mean, I get these opportunities that that are congruent with my brand. But I mean, in my career, I had to say, okay, because collectors, you know, my revenue stream comes from people buying my work to put on their walls. Um, or, you know, and most of it is residential. Some of it is corporate, but most of it's residential um, or museums. But museums aren't, the, you know, the main source of income is a person who builds a new house that wants pieces of mine on their wall. And so they all have a finite wall space. And so you constantly have to be farming tomorrow's collector base. Um, and so I would say I take 20% of my resources. I encourage my students to do this as well. Take 20% of your resources, even though when you're so busy, and I love it when my some of my artist friends say, I'm so busy, I'm three years out. That's fabulous. But you still need to take 20% of your resources and allocate it to when that runs its gamut. And it will. It will always run its time. And so how do you cultivate tomorrow's you know, buyers? And, and where are they? And who are they? And you know, thinking yeah. about that. So I just think that that's an important thing as, a, as an artist is that what I didn't see that coming is the plateau, how to break it, and then how to cultivate so that that plateau is as long as short as possible. You don't want it to be a 10 year plateau, two year plateau. I'll accept that 10 year. You made a mistake. Yeah, you, you brought up something that's really interesting that the regarding the plateau and you made a comment and I, I've had this discussion with many guests is, you know, like a lot of times and we've had success in our head, like we've uh, you know, it's how we've made money, how we've made, you know, whatever. But like sometimes, like for me, I, I've learned through meditation that when I get out of my head and I can sink down into my heart where it's not about thinking, it's about feeling, is that a, a strategy that, whether it's meditation for you or something else, but like, what is, what is it you do to break the whatever, I don't even know how to term that, but like when you're, when you're struggling, you're like, trying to reinvent, but you, you don't want to say goodbye to what got you here, but you know, you've got to kind of change it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We all have to find that place where we, our, our creativity and our, our, um, you know, I, I guess our vision flows like water. It's unencumbered. It flows like water. What is that? I have two spaces for that or two scenarios for that. One of them is, um, you know, exercise, uh, waking up at five in the morning, every morning, going to the gym before my kids are up, before my wife's up, before the emails and all the noise and going in the gym and just being in that space. But, um, but my, I think my best place where it really flows full on <laughs> the faucet of creativity flows and the ideas and where I can get connected to that inner voice 
And that's when I'm in Africa, when I'm in wild open spaces. And I say Africa, it can happen other places, but primarily Africa. When that warm air is blowing across my face, when I'm in an open top vehicle driving across an open plain surrounded by wildlife, that's where that brain and that just ideas flow so freely. And, and, and I can hear what's the right path when I'm slightly confused at what, where to go, where to turn, how to make, you know, negotiate or navigate all these crazy things coming at you. Just the noise of the white noise flows away it goes away it dials back and so i can truly hear that inner voice and that yeah so we all have to find where that spot is you know yo people find it in yoga that's my yoga yeah i love it i remember uh hanging out with you recently at the uh party and i'll always remember this story because i was kind of curious what it looked like from afar like what does it look like for you to get into your your zone of genius and do your thing and you made a comment, and I don't know if this is typical for a lot of your art that you do, but you went away for, I wanna say close to 28, 30 days or something, like away from the wife, away from the kids. And you just, you know, you you mm -hmm. submerge, I'll let you articulate it, but is that, is that, maybe you could just briefly explain what you do, but is that a typical way that you get, like like an athlete preparing for a big game? Is that how you do your thing? Yeah, it is. Now, right now, my studio is about uh, 500 feet from the house, but it's a separate building, really important, by the way, um, and and uh, on the other side of the fence, and it's kind of in its own tucked back in the forest. But I have an art center in Montana, and so that commission happened to be a very large commission for a very high-profile client for his home. It had a hard deadline, and the deadline needed six months, and I had literally two months to do it. And so I cleared out my art center. I say cleared out my art center. I moved a lot of the mobile walls and I cleared the space and created. And I spent um, that first, I was actually had to go to Africa in the meantime, had a trip scheduled. So I had my team there um, key up everything I needed. They stretched the canvas. They built the things. They, they built the stretcher or the, um, the easels. They put them on wheels. They got a big mirror. They recreated everything I had here on a macro scale because these paintings were eight feet wide by 18 feet high, two of them. And they were a landscape, Aspen Forest, and I painted them with a palette knife, but I had no idea how I'd paint that scale that quick. And, and, and I say quick, meaning there's no, you can't shorten the time period. It is what it is. It's like an actor giving a line or a musician doing a, a piano piece, you know, you can't shorten it. You can shorten the length of time it takes you to get in the seat, how to get in the stadium, how to get in. You, know, you can shorten the, the stuff on the outside of it, but the act you can't shorten. So I knew I couldn't shorten the hours, but I could shorten sleep. I could shorten transition time. I could eat faster, you know, all of that. And so um, I knew what I was going into. I got back from Africa. Everything was set up. I quickly drove to Montana, got off. I had one day to just tweak everything set it all up. I had the genie. I had all my paints and caulking guns. They were, I was loaded. I mean, I was ready to go. And I, when I squeezed that trigger, I had basically 35 days to get this done. And so I've painted up to 22 hour days. There were days when I was only sleeping a few hours, but I had all my clothes laid out. I had, you know, I brushed my teeth. I ate a little bit and I painted and that's all I did. But I also needed all the tools the motivational tools or the inspiring tools. So music, uh, uh, you know, podcasts, all my, all my listening stuff, because it's really, e it's not easy, but you, anyone can do that for five days, six days. 
it's the 12th day, the 15th day. And when you know, when you start out at six in the morning, you're going to see two o'clock at night come and you will not leave that mindset, the space. And so you, you, that endurance, you've got to use artificial stimulants. And I use not, not oral and not that crazy stuff, but the, the, I use music and, 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 and stories and, you know, um, yeah, just, I had a lot of ACDC playing at two in the morning. <laughs> I was going to ask you, what's your jam? What do you like to rock out to? My introduction is a little bit of an ACDC song uh, to this podcast. Um, you know, when you're talking though, this is for the audience. It's like, you know, when you, if, if, and not to be negative or whatever, but like when you're in a career that it's maybe your, your zone of excellence, you're really good at it, but you're not in your zone of genius. It's hard and exhausting to run a race after so many years. And so when you're talking like you can't fake that on the 15th, 16th day. I mean, that is that's who you are. And I would just encourage people to really think about, you know, what they're doing. And again, sometimes it's going to take months and years to kind of figure it out. But pay attention to the obvious, the things that light you up, make you a better version of yourself, you know, um, that on a Saturday, you have a whole day to do anything and you find yourself doing this. Um, when I'm listening to you right now, I'm thinking like, you can't fake that. I mean, that is that is who you are. And that's how you get to the finish line by being genuinely in love. And, you know, part of what you do. Yeah, for anyway. sure. Yeah, for sure. And, that, and that's just me being t totally tuned into you know, who, who I am and what I love. And I, you know, Dirk, what I love to do is to create self-expression to inspire others. That's, you know, um, through the use of a stick with hair on the end of it and a gooey material that has color on it, using color and edges and, um, and depth of stroke and hue or intensity of color to make a third party, not myself, but a third party um, it's got to do it first from me to a third party, the viewer, to feel something. They may hate it, but I made them feel. <laughs> they may love it. And to make them feel something. And that, to me, is where I, where I get really good energy from. You know, it transcends my physical body, whether I'm tired or not. I can, you know, that's where that 15th, 16th, 18th day matters. In my mind, towards the end, when I was really struggling, you know, I mean, I, you, you, when you go sleep deprivation, you get messed up, you know, your whole body, your, all your systems, you're, you're, you're a mess. Um, and so that last few days, the last, let's say, five, six, eight days was probably the hardest part um, and because you're really feeling the struggle. And so I just kept visualizing, you know, what, how, how it would fe you know, feel when we installed it how it would be when that whole family flew in and they walked into that space. And, and the client absolutely said, you know, the minute he walked in, he said, literally, these are your best works, you know, and, I, and that just made me feel so good. And I kept rehearsing kind of that feeling, what they would feel like. And, you know, I knew who was always, you know, who they would bring there and all of stuff. So I knew what was at stake and I had to latch onto that to get me through those trying moments. You know, you have to, I think you just have to seek out way you know listen to yourself and know how you're wired and what really gets you going and seek out those you know preparedness is so important preparedness getting yourself access to those things that can drive you um into that into that uh, to your being your best self when you need to be when everything's going against you <laughs> i love it uh and i remember you showing me photos those weren't small those were 
pretty they big monsters. <laughs> they're a monster. I mean, what, 20 feet, 18 feet or 18, 18 feet high. Yeah. They yeah. Were by eight feet high. The two of them, I mean, just lifting them. It took five people to lift them, you know, and just to get them in the house. It was, so I saw them, they, my, my, I was at on, on another African trip. Yeah. The second African trip when, when they were installed. And so I got to see them last fall walk into the building. And it was so cool for me to see them um, on the wall. You know, it's like, um, you 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 send your kid off to college and and they get, you know get a great degree and they become somebody a professional and they go and do their thing or whatever they do and it's like walking into their workspace and see them in their zone you know it's like that feeling of I gave birth to them and look at them now they've got a new family that's adopted them and they're doing great <laughs> I love it I think uh, you know I, you're just making me think of my daughter and my son and I just hope they're happy and I hope they. Um, yeah. On Monday morning, they're excited to go to work, uh, or maybe they don't think about about it as work. Um, right? You know, isn't that the new success, though, Dirk? I mean, isn't that really? You know, we used to my when I was younger, it was always about fiscal performance, but today it's the new success, the new measurement of success, the litmus test of success is: Are you happy? That's all we want for our kids. How old are your kids? Eighteen and fourteen. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, eighteen and sixteen. Eighteen and sixteen. I'm okay. They're just, their wings are just starting to stretch their wings, you know. All you want for them to do is to find that space where they are happy and that they feel the sense of fulfillment and that and, and internal peace. You know, the, 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 the war inside them is, you know, quite, the voice inside them is quieted down. The, the wolf mm -hmm. inside of them is calm. <laughs> um, that's a great space. And that's all we want for our children. I want them to be happy. But I mean, all of us, I want that for everybody. I mean, the world would be a great, better place if we could all find our genius zone, if we could all be there. Not yeah. all of us will find it. And some of us find it much later. And, you know, the tumultuous pathway to find it, but never stop seeking it. And when you find it, when you discover it, don't let other reasons get in the way of why you couldn't, you know, why you didn't. I mean, the biggest thing is to sit at the end of this journey of, of called life and have regrets. I mean, you find, you know, when you find that space where you know you you don't know if five minutes has passed or five hours, um, that's a to, to live in that existence and that money will follow. I mean, that's the beautiful part about the world today is I don't care what it is that that really turns you on. You there's a monetary opportunity for it. You'll find it. Just be the best at it. Give everything you've got to it, and and that is a great space to wake up to every day. You should speak like Tony. You are not only a bodybuilder, artist, <laughs> conservationist, but you're also really, I mean, you're very, uh, wait, a lot of the things you're throwing out are exactly why I started this podcast. Um, I do have to ask you, I mean, you've done so much beautiful art. Do you have one that you're most proud of? Like that you're like, you know, you go like this to yourself or you just put a smile on your face. Is there one that you've done that stands out? I, you know, I can't, I can't because I love, love them all for different reasons. It's like okay. children, you know, which do you like your 14 year old or your 16 year old better? Oh, I like my daughter way better. <laughs> Just kidding, Noah. I love you, buddy. <laughs> but you know, it's because there, there are certain attributes to certain pieces that you love. And, you know, I mean, I can, if I, if I, you know, I could take certain parts out of the top 10 and say why I love them so much. There was a painting that I recently it was so interesting. It was owned by a museum. There was a collection of pieces. The museum went out of business. Museums rarely go out of business, by the way. I've never even heard of a museum going out of business. It was in Colorado, Parker, Colorado, called the Wildlife Experience, founded by Dave Linegar, the, the founder of uh, Remax Real Estate. And Dave, um, 
anyway, Dave, you know, built this great museum and ended up going back to, I think it was Colorado State University or Colorado University, University of Denver University, maybe. I can't remember the yeah. college, but regardless, he gave the building, some of the buildings on the campus, of the museum campus. And, and bottom line is eventually everything went to the university and they weren't in the art business. So they auctioned all the art. I saw it coming up for auction. It was a huge um, painting called Tusk. And I, and I really wanted it for my family. It was a really special piece to me. It meant a lot. It, it was a painting that my daughters, I had photographed them in front of it and they were helping me paint it and um, in their little safari outfits. And we did a poster called Dream Big with it. And, and, but I knew if my collectors heard about it, I could never chase it. <laughs> so um, uh, anyway, there were a couple of big collectors that heard about the auction. I was hoping it was gonna kind of go out there quietly. And I just asked them if you could just let me have this one, just back off and you can chase the other ones, but let me have that one. And so they let me, so I bought it back, <laughs> which was fabulous. And so I have it in my art center that will be part of our family collection. Um, it's the only painting I have in our family. I mean, you think I'd be loaded with paintings, but um, each my, one of my girls, I'm going to have to give one of my paintings to. But uh, right now I got to save my money to buy a, buy one of my paintings back to get it. Oh, that's hilarious. I uh, Hey, and before we end this, I just... you. Your show, do you mind showing your just a little bit of your studio? I just think it's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, just kind of some of the, and by the way, this is uh, John's third version of a studio. He's he's improved it and figured out what he wanted with, you know, maybe different lighting or whatever, but right. it, yeah. So that's the, that's the building. That's some of the taxidermy. Some of the, I was helping Ken Baring, um when Ken was building, when he was alive, yep. a former, former director, uh, former owner of the Seahawks before Paul Allen. Um, building these museums in China, these natural history museums, we were helping craft the conservation narrative. And so I ended up getting a lot of taxidermy from, from their collection, which was really exciting for me as an artist because now I get to see the real thing. So, um, so this is kind of my workspace. You can kind of see it right there behind me. Um, I've got a big mirror right there. And then the canvas that I'm working on now is a bison piece. Um, I've got a big bison piece that's going on that canvas right there. Um, this is my skull collection. We're, you can kind of see up top there. Um, this is my kind of the different collections of different things from Africa and elephants. And I've got a rhino, um, rhino skull and a lion here. And I've got a bird collection back here. And then upstairs is where my wife works when she's working in the studio. And then we have uh, a kitchen, kitchen here and an outdoor deck. You can see that. I don't know if a camera's on the right spot, a little sitting area when clients come to visit. And then taking you downstairs is where, um, where all of the uh, things get framed and teed up. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. That's the up, upper part of the space. Oh, beautiful. And then these, I love these bleachers. These bleachers were um, uh, a high school that, that shut down in Livingston, Montana, that I bought all the bleachers. And I love that this is real, real full, uh, well, one by 12, well, one by 10 inch um, lumber. That's uh, cool. And then the sky, the, um, the, the different lights, um, uh, stained glass. I've got several stained glass in here that um, all came from different stories around the country churches and things that have shut down so yeah that's kind of it in a nutshell well, i hope you have a little couch there i can crash on anytime Dirk. you have an open invitation anytime
Whoops. What did I just do? Did I just mute you? Dirk, you went quiet for some reason. I can't hear you. What did I just do? That's <laughs> okay. There you are. I got your back. All right. Hey, back. that's all right. That's good. Um, I did see something on my screen that said my internet was unstable. So that that's probably me, not you. Um, I was going to say, uh, there's one, two questions I always ask one. I won't because I know the answer. Um, but I will say if you were an animal, what would you be out of all these animals you're fascinated with? Is there yeah. one that you feel no, more in no alignment question. with? No question. That's a, that's a lion. Um, I love everything about yeah. the spirit of the lion, what it represents. It's been used on crests. It's been used in British Navy. It's been MGM uses their logo. You know, the lion represents so much to so many people. And the reason is a lion has courage. A lion is social. It, it, it bonds with its brother. Uh, a lion is strength, stealth. You know, it's got uh, evolutionary capacity to take down an animal that weighs five times bigger than it. Um, a lion is, I think, represents the best of ourselves. So, yeah, lion. That was my second book. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you. As well, I called that lion? Study of the African Lion. I did a, a book all about the African lion. And it motivated me as it's a young of, boy from the, the, that, that, down in San Diego, the um, Lion Country Safari when it was open and you could drive around and lions would jump on your car and things back in the day when liability wasn't an issue. That inspired this little seven-year-old boy to uh, you know, start painting lions. So for sure, lion. I love it. I, I think we've named a few of our pets Aslan and a few of my passwords are Aslan something. But um, I will also, also ask if... Uh, I mean, this is hard because out of all the folks I've interviewed, you know, there's a few like yourself that are like, you are what you do, like as much as I've seen. But if you could not paint, you could not be an artist. Is there another, I, 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 I was going to say a dream job, but I know you're doing your dream job. But what would you do if you couldn't, let's just say you, you couldn't be an artist? Do you have an idea? Um, I would create experiences for people and, and, you know, like with our travel company, I get to play that for a moment. Like we just were on a zoom call before you with a family from, um, California that that's, uh, wants to go and do something very unique and very special. So I love that, but I think a, an actual career, it would have been, um, an architect or an interior designer. Yeah. Hmm. Create those experiences, those visual experiences for people that gets to take, that, you know, takes them on a journey, a visual journey through creativity and through arranging elements. I mean, in essence, yeah. it's what I do. You know, I happen to be a painter and get known for it and I love what it, but you know, when you design a safari for someone, you're doing the same thing. You're creating this, a series of elements that line up to create a crescendo that, that creates this experience that, 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 that empowers them and takes, you know, it changes them. Um, when you a great architect, texture can do that as as you know you've got great architecture and suddenly you just walk into a space and it just changes profoundly um what it, what it uh you know your how you feel it can impact how you feel and you know um interior design does that as well so yeah that's a long answer but one of the i love it um my favorite book is the fountainhead and the character is howard rourke and he's an architect but it's much more about life but um whenever i think of architecture i think of him um, is there anything I haven't mentioned, John, that's, you know, you understand exactly what I'm trying to do in this, this podcast. Is there anything I didn't ask you that 
is kind of on the tip of your tongue that you might want to leave the audience with, or do you feel pretty complete? I feel complete, but I think, you know, just to summarize, it's simple. I love what you're doing, Dirk. And I think, you know, hope, hopefully a few folks uh, listen to this and, and, and maybe um, kind of, uh, you know, encourages them to seize the day carpe diem, you know, at, our life, I mean, I'm turning 60 next year, um, January. And so that's a big, profound <laughs> milestone. Um, but, you know, all you, you, it doesn't matter if you're 20, 30, 40, 50, wherever you're at in this pathway, you know, it's never too late to start and to, to you have to you have to give it a shot. You've got to find that thing that you love, embrace it and take a risk and, and turn your that vocation into that uh, vocation into an advocation, you know, um, or wait, advocation into a vocation. Uh, you know, I think that it's really, um, you just have to do it. Nike, you got to adopt Nike's philosophy, just do it. Yeah, I agree. And you've done it at a very high level. So thank you. It's an honor to have you on and it's an honor to call you a friend. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure, Dirk. Always good to see you and look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks, right, for, the, thanks for the call, talk today. All right. Cheers. Thank you.